We've been talking about Jesus' identification of himself as the great I Am. Against the background of that name, that title that God gave to himself back at the time when he appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, We looked at that passage from Exodus 3 where Moses said, when I go down and I speak to your people and they say, well, who sent you? They already knew him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They called him El Shaddai, the Almighty God, but they still were asking for a name, and God said to Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. God had already declared himself to be, I am that I am, the self-existent, independent, transcendent, sovereign God, all those big fancy 75 cent theological terms that we use, all boiling down to saying God is really, really big and way bigger than you can ever conceptualize with your puny little mind. And he's God over all, but as God over all, he now gives himself to his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And when you use that name, Yahweh, or I am, you'll remember. Uh, When I've talked about this, I don't think I've mentioned this here recently, but at other times, you know, we often have, well, pet names gives the wrong impression because this name is filled with reverence. But the kind of pet name that, that you only can speak to a spouse or a child um, you know, we used to, uh, I won't tell you what the names were, but we had pet names for our children, but we had to swear that when they became adults, we would never call them by that name in public. We failed, but, you know, what can I say? Something that is more than just a name, it expresses a relationship. And so when Israel called God, the creator and sustainer of everything, Yahweh, they were saying, my God, and I am your child. I, am, I belong to you in that beautiful relationship of union and communion, which is what the covenant is all about. And now Jesus comes into the world, and we started all of this with John 8.58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that could just be a grammatical construction, a very simple one, or it could be freighted with all of this added significance. And I think as we've been looking at these passages and thinking about them as they would have struck Jewish ears at the time, um, just like you pick up a reference to something that a person mentions only in passing, He doesn't say, as such and such, or whatever. Just the reference will make you connect. So they hear, I am, out of the lips of this Nazarene, and they begin to think, he's claiming to be God. And of course, he does that in a number of places. Uh, I and the Father are one, for example. And then... In other passages, and last week we looked at when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, or the living bread that came down from heaven, uh, or I am the light of the world. 
there are these several phrases where the I am is connected with some statement about who Jesus is. And this morning we're going to look at a couple of more. I am the door of the sheepfold and I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, And then tonight we'll look at him saying, I am the good shepherd. Now you've guessed it, this started out to be one sermon that has become two sermons. My only regret is that some of you won't come back to hear part B of this morning's sermon. Too bad. But uh, anyway, sometimes less is more. I didn't used to believe that. I always thought more was more. But I'm learning. It's taken a long time, hasn't it? So all of this then, to see how Jesus identifies himself with the God of the covenant, but also with something about the God of the covenant that he is then going to administer to his people in his role as Messiah, as Redeemer. Now, two of these statements come from John 10. uh, I am the door and I am the good shepherd, but I'm going to split those because thematically, uh, two of these I am sayings draw our attention to the very important fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way of access to God. So on the one hand, Jesus says, I am the door. On the other hand, he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But both of those sayings are pointing to the same reality. And it's one of those things, perhaps the thing that turns people off about Christianity. In our day and age where all religions are essentially equal, Uh, All religions are private matters of your own personal conviction and have nothing to do with the way you live your life in the world, the way you live your life publicly, uh, so that we should all tolerate one another and coexist with one another. When Christianity says, no, there's only one way to eternal happiness and blessing And that is through Jesus Christ. The modern world says, how dare you? How dare Jesus be so arrogant as to say that no one can come to God except through him? And that's a stumbling block to people. Maybe it was for some of you. You thought, how how can one religion, why can't Christians just play well with others and say, yeah, any road will get you there. But Jesus says, no, there's only one door to the sheepfold by which we enter and come out for the saving of our souls. And there's only one way to the true and living God, and that is by me. So we'll look at those this morning, and then we'll come back to John 10 tonight, God willing, and look at the uh, magnificent statement. Well, they're all magnificent statements, are they? Uh, I am the good shepherd. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, we've tried to get ourselves oriented to what you want to say to us uh, this morning. And so we ask for open hearts that we will be uh, profoundly receptive. Um, As a matter of fact, hearing your voice um, is the distinguishing characteristic of a true believer. 
Uh, Those who are not your sheep do not listen to your voice. They do not follow you. And we don't want to be those kind of people, or worse, people who hear your voice outwardly and yet do not follow you loyally and faithfully from the heart. So, Holy Spirit, will you come and bring this word to bear upon us uh, in our hearts that we might know the one whom to know is eternal life. Uh, and to know the Father through Him. We marvel again at the way you, triune God, work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your own distinctive way of bringing grace into our lives. And we pray that all of you will bless us, uh, that one God will bless us this morning as we listen to your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to turn over there to John 10 for a moment, uh, Jesus says, I am the door, uh, the opening to a sheep fold or a, a pen where shepherds would keep their flocks. It uh, often was just brush that was stacked up to, uh, you know, sheep, unless they're panicked, they don't need a lot of uh, Fencing, for example, they don't need the kind of fences that you need in the mountains to keep the deer out of your garden. You can't build a fence high enough to keep a deer out. Um, But sheep will stop if they see a barrier. But maybe if you were a little uh, wealthier, you lived in the right kind of territory, that fold, that pen would be a little bit more substantial. But be that as it may, there's only one entry. That's the point Jesus is making. And so he says, I am the door there in verse 7 and again in verse 9. Now he prefaces this statement with a little parable about shepherds and sheep in general. So let me begin reading at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Let me just say here parenthetically. So that brings these two images together, even though we're going to separate them by morning and evening. The door and the shepherd are one and the same person, Jesus Himself. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To Him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. When He has brought out all His own, He goes before them, and the sheep follow Him, for they know His voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, or parable as some of the translations have it, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, I'm not a shepherd. I don't know any shepherds personally, but uh, I'm told by people who either are or have been or studied with shepherds that this uh, point that Jesus made is is uh, well known, uh, uh, at least until flocks became so huge, you know, thousands of sheep. Sometimes you drive up the Central Valley of California and if you're in the right place, you might see uh, sheep by the hundreds or thousands. The, the sheep flocks that 
that were present in Jesus' day would have been much smaller and, and more manageable. But this idea that the shepherd can spend so much time with the sheep that he can identify them. And again, to me, one sheep looks more or less like another. Am I right? They know each individual sheep. They might have a name for this sheep or that sheep. Now again, if you're turning sheep over for meat, they're not going to be around very long. But if you're raising sheep for wool, you're going to shave them and the wool's going to grow back. You're going to shave them again. So year after year after year, dealing with the same flock, that intimate relationship, so much so that the sheep can even come to identify the voice of a shepherd. Now again, in some places, like in England, they use dogs to herd sheep. It's pretty much passe now except for in, uh, in sheepdog trials. Um, but here the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and they identify his voice as over against the voice of a stranger and they follow him. So now the disciples and poor disciples, you know, Jesus was this way, you know, he'd just say this and, and, and then so that they would have... Where's it going with this? What's what's this got to do with anything? Um, Talking about shepherds and sheep, you know, how spiritual is that? So they didn't really understand what he was getting at. So that's what calls forth the explanation and the application. Jesus then goes on to say, I am the door. I'm the shepherd that goes in and out through the door, but I'm also the door myself into the sheepfold. And entering through this door, we're told by Jesus, is the way of access to salvation. Now, salvation, as you know, is is probably the most comprehensive term that's used in the Bible for the blessedness of human beings. Since the fall, it always has to be redemptive. But to enter into God's, the fullness of God's blessing. So, The forgiveness of sins is an aspect of salvation. Uh, The uh, uh, promise of eternal life is an aspect, redemption, and so on and so forth. All of these things are subheads of the idea of salvation. So Jesus says, whoever comes in through that door will enter into salvation. And he contrasts himself with with other shepherds, other leaders that have come before him. He identifies them as exploitive ones. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. That's because they climbed up over the side of the sheepfold. They didn't enter in through the appropriate way. And so, and, and we'll talk more about this because Jesus mentions them later as hirelings and and he's critiquing the Jewish leadership of the day. But here he makes the point that um, as the door, anyone who enters by me, verse 9, will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here's the blessedness. Life but life in all of its fullness. When uh, God created Adam and Eve in the beginning, He gave them life. 
And it was life in paradise. It was life in fellowship with God. Now, it was life that was conditional in that God tested them. He said, um, in order to be confirmed in this life, you have to be faithful and obedient to me. And the test case was going to be that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the threat, of course, was if you, in the day that you eat thereof, if you transgress my commandment, you will surely die. And death passed to all of us. So now life and abundant life is promised by Jesus as we go in and out following him and find pasture. What is abundant life? Uh, for many of our contemporaries, it's, uh, it's the abundance of the things that you can accumulate. You know, whoever has the most toys when they die wins. <laughs> That's really one of the most tragically ironic statements, since another cliche is you can't take any of it with you. But we try to accumulate stuff. Is that abundant life? Maybe it's rich and rewarding relationships. But who among us hasn't been heartbroken by a wonderful relationship that went sour for one reason or another? Whether it's husbands and wives, or parents and children, or siblings with one another, or close friends. I mean, if we took 10 minutes and I said, I want you to think about all your former friends that don't want to have anything to do with you anymore, 10 minutes probably wouldn't be long enough. So can we find abundant life in wonderful relationships? Maybe it's being an American and knowing the liberties that we have enjoyed. If we could just preserve the republic, that would give us abundant life. Well if we could preserve it, which we can't, would that really make our life fully satisfying? You see, Jesus is talking about something much more. It's life, but it's life in all of its fullness. And we were made to live in fellowship with God. And so abundant life requires reconciliation to God entering into a renewed relationship with him. And that's why redemption is the restoration of what Adam and Eve had in the beginning. But now it's much, much greater because it has come at the expense of the giving of God's dear son. So we're reconciled to God, but we're reconciled to God in Christ and through Christ. And to know this one, as we'll see in a moment, is eternal life. So again, this passage is only going to be attractive to someone if they are dissatisfied with the kind of life that they're living right now. If somebody has all those toys, you know, and somebody asks them, what do you want for Christmas? And they say, I, I don't know, I have everything. I can't imagine anything else in the way of stuff that would make me happier well, then they're not going to be interested in the life that Jesus offers. If they think they're doing fine just by themselves, they're moral, upstanding, responsible, productive members of society, that's all they need, then they won't come to Christ because they're not interested in what he has to offer. But perhaps we who 
have tried the other alternatives and found them lacking. So when Jesus says life, our ears perk up. And when he says have it abundantly, they perk up even more. Just like when Jesus said to the woman, I will give you living water. She says, well, I come here every day and I draw water. What kind of, give me that water. Give me that life. So we hear the voice. If we hear the voice and it resonates with a need, then we will listen to Him and we will follow Him. You see, the entering, the key to this entering is hearing His voice. Um, it's uh, Again, you look in your concordance for that word voice, and it pops up... Uh, Strikingly, in John's Gospel, we hear the voice of John the Baptist. And the question is, will people listen to the voice of John the Baptist in order to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah? Then in chapter 5, Jesus talks about hearing the Father's voice. Will we tune in to that voice? And here, it's the voice of Jesus Himself. Hear the voice and follow the shepherd. Uh, Later, Jesus reveals, later in this chapter, verse 25, Jesus reveals why some who were right there audibly hearing his voice, but did not really hear, did not believe. I told you, Jesus says in verse 25, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So we're back to the familiarity between the the shepherd and the sheep. And in the midst of all of the cacophonous voices that we might hear from the media, from family, from friends, uh, from other believers, we need to hear through that din and hear the voice of the shepherd. And that comes to us from the Word of God. So, you're not my sheep, that's why you didn't hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life, verse 28, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, we won't go into it, but this just points out again uh, what we as Calvinists profess, that that redemption begins in the electing love of God before time. Before the heavens and the earth were created, God set His love on some people in His Son, and He gave those people. They are the ones that the Father gave to the Son. And Jesus says, these are the sheep that God has given Me. And in due course, the Holy Spirit will enable them to hear my voice and follow me. So in the planning of redemption and the, applica- uh, the uh, accomplishment of salvation and in the, the application of salvation, it's God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that, that bring us to Him. So do you hear and do you believe what Jesus says about Himself in these passages 
It's the response. Now again, think about Jesus. He didn't come in with all the trappings of royalty. He wasn't part of the uh, religious establishment, so he wasn't born uh, into a a priestly family, for example, uh, or a high priestly family. I mean, there was no way outwardly that, uh, that Jesus could be identified as anything special. What identified him was his voice, what he said, how he said it, supported by his miracles, of course, but it's hearing and heeding the voice. And, and you know, today that's the same way. We've been praying, haven't we, throughout this COVID time, and we do this for individuals. They get sick, they're going to have a life-threatening surgery, they've lost their job, their family's broken up, some external crisis, and we pray that God would use that to bring them to faith. But as a matter of fact, no external circumstance will bring anybody to faith. Only the Spirit enabling us to hear the voice of the shepherd and to heed his invitation. Now that might coincide with a crisis, but for every person who is converted in the midst of a crisis, there are ten that are embittered and hardened by the very same kind of crisis. Jesus said, don't be surprised that I say you must be born again. It takes that inward work of the Spirit. No one will come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So, so that's what distinguishes. And Every once in a while, someone who becomes a Calvinist, they're sort of convinced by the Bible that this bitter matter of predestination is true, but then they're left with this emotional uncertainty. Well, it can be more than emotional uncertainty. How do I know that I'm chosen by God? It's a secret. It happened a long, long time ago, and and nobody's blabbing about who's elect and who's not. How can I know? Well, here's a very simple way to know. If you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe Him and you follow Him, you are one of those whom the Father has chosen. It doesn't have to be mystical. It doesn't have to be spooky or scary. The question is real simple. When I read the Bible now, because Jesus isn't here physically with us, when I read it, when I hear it preached, do I hear the voice of God speaking to me? And do I believe it? And do I follow it? And if I hear a thousand other voices at the same time contradicting, do I hear it and do I follow? You hear lots of people giving you reasons not to believe. Those of you who are students, you get a steady diet of that. It's shoveled at you all the time, implicitly or explicitly. You can't, you're a grown-up adult now. You can't really follow that Sunday school religion that you were raised with. Follow us. Listen to our voices. But you know, you can have great confidence if you hear the voice of the shepherd and you follow him. So that's Jesus' point. They hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I will give them eternal life. Now the other saying that goes along with this is in John 14, verse 6. Probably without ever trying to memorize it, you've memorized it, right? I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
But if you want to turn over there for a moment, let's just notice the context. How does this statement arise? Uh, Verse 1 of John 14 is one of those beautiful passages that we at least hear at funerals, uh, but maybe at other times as well. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So that's Jesus' statement. A wonderful blessedness in the Father's house. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, that I'm going to come and get you and take you to where I am, and you know how you're going to get there. But Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't get it. We still don't get it. You know, this is more Thomas not understanding, I think, than the Thomas who says, I need to touch him. But that's another sermon for another time. You know that I'm spending my life trying to rehabilitate the reputation of doubting Thomas. But here he just says, we, we don't get this. And that's when Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you had have, would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So again, the, the, the presupposition here is the identification that Jesus is making between himself as the Son of God with the Father, God the Father. And the fact that knowing the Son is to know the Father. That's the whole point. Um, and to know both of them is eternal life. Um, he who has seen me, uh, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, just a, a quick sidebar. When we think about God, the true and living God, we can never think about Him apart from His final and complete revelation in Jesus Christ. You want to know what the God of the Bible is like? you behold Him in the face of Jesus Christ. This nonsense about one God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament is rubbish. And yet, sometimes even Christians think about the... Remember, our way of access to the God of the Old Testament is through the God of the New Testament, God in Christ. He's the one that bears witness. So when you go back and you read the Old Testament and you hear that God speak and you watch Him act and sometimes it, it... it's bothersome, you have to remind yourself, yes, but this is the same God that brought His Son into the world. And I have encountered this God in Jesus Christ. And that colors and shapes my understanding of the God who has been there since before the creation. So, to know Jesus is to know the Father. Um, And the reason for that, of course, is mentioned in John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God or the only begotten God, 
who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one has the relationship to the Father that the Son has. And so the Son knows what He's talking about when He comes to reveal the Father to us. And in Jesus' prayer in John 17, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know You, the true and living God, His Father, and Jesus, the Messiah, whom you have sent. And so in knowing Christ, we know the God who is there. And in knowing the God who is there, we have eternal life. Now we might just think about the connection between the way and the truth and the life. And notice the definite articles. It's the way, the truth, the life. It's not a way, one of many ways, one of many truths, they're connected because the Bible is the book about reality. Um, Over against falsehood, over against fantasy. Just think how in this digital age we have uh, put fantasy on steroids. Uh, We don't have to imagine something anymore. Somebody will make a computer-generated picture of it, whether it's in a video game or, or something else where, where we can see beyond our wildest imaginations and, and we can be drawn into a virtual reality. You know what another name for virtual reality is? Fantasy. Falsehood. And yet, for many of our contemporaries, they can't tell the difference anymore between fantasy and reality. And the tragedy is often we like our fantasy more than we like the reality. The Bible's about reality. I am the truth and the life. Ultimately, um, it's about self de- our world is about self-deception and then deceiving others. People that can talk themselves into believing something. They've seen it on the internet. And they've, they've heard about this. And people that they rely upon have told them this. And they are convinced. And then, of course, they become convincers of others. So, with that being the state of human affairs, and the lie has been, in one form or another, the order of the day ever since Genesis 3, when... The evil one, the murderer, the father of lies came in and proposed a fantasy to Adam and Eve. God said, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die, but you won't surely die. Listen to me. I'll give you a counter proposal. In the day that you eat thereof, you will actually truly begin to live. You will be like God yourself. Deciding for yourself what's good and evil and right or wrong. And if you fast forward all those years down to today, now we've given a name to it. This is called postmodernism. Modernism was everything about the universe can be figured out scientifically, rationally and scientifically. Yeah, we haven't got it all figured out yet, but in principle, everything is understandable in terms of reason and sense experience and scientific analysis. And that's what drove the intellectual uh, revolution that produced the modern world. Um, 
And so it's always, we don't know yet, but we'll figure it out. And many things have been figured out after the fact. And so we have this great confidence. But then that worldview began to erode because we realized that the knower is a very important factor in knowing. And so maybe it's not as cut and dried. Maybe even science isn't as absolute as we have been told it is. And so now the shift comes more and more to the knower. And what I know might differ from what you know. Now still in, you know, you can't on a math test say 2 plus 2 equals 7 and get away with it because that's your truth, not the professor's truth. But in much of life, and certainly in the religious life, whatever spirituality I perceive to be true for me, that will be my fantasy world. That will be the lie in terms of which I live. And you meet people every single day. You've got them in your family. You've got them in the workplace. We've got them on television, on the 6 o'clock news, who basically say, in matters of religion, anything goes. There is no truth. And that's postmodernism. Give it a fancy name, it becomes legitimate. It becomes even obligatory. And against all that background, from Genesis 3 to today, you have Jesus saying, I am the truth. I am the ultimate reality check. I'm the one you need to measure yourself by. And you know, if 2020 has taught us anything, uh, it's taught us the uh, frustration, the futility, the chaos and confusion that arises out of too much information and no way to really discern what information is true and what information is false. Whether it has to do with COVID, whether it has to do with the results of a national election, whether it has to do with Russia's involvement in blah, 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 or what China's going to do next. Everybody's got lots and lots and lots of information and no real truth. And even Christians who claim to know some truths seem to have a desperately difficult time trusting the God of truth because they've got all this information and they don't know what to believe anymore. We know what to believe. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is directly involved in the affairs of our nation and in your individual life. And if you have come to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, you have nothing to fear. And we walk by that faith. The fact that you had it yesterday doesn't give it to you today. You have to have it again. And then tomorrow again. And then tomorrow again. And you have to catch yourself. And you have to catch your fellow believers who sink into this. I mean, it's frantic right now. Even when it begins to appear that certain things that you thought were true in a worldly realm aren't true after more. And then you go, oh no, now what? We go back to the touchstone. Jesus is not only the way, but He's the truth. You know, if anything, you should read the Bible twice as long as you expose yourself to social media every single day. 
I mean, I have a few friends who says, you know, I'm off Facebook. I'm not, I'm not listening, and I'm not listening to network news. I'm not even listening to Fox anymore. I'm not listening to anything. And that's going to do you how much good unless you replace it with the truth. The truth. The truth. And yet we find it so painful to read the Bible every day. It's such a burden to have to sit down and for 15 minutes commune with God in the Scriptures. Why do we have to go to so many services? Why do we have to listen to so many sermons? Isn't one a week more than enough to get us through? No. Because you're drowning in lies. And the only way you can know the truth, because the only way the truth speaks to us anymore is through Scripture. The Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. It is the voice of the shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible as a whole and the message of Jesus, the Gospel within it, provides that ultimate reality check. That's like the plumb line that you see in the prophets sometimes. Everything is so bent that you think everything's bent. You're bent. It all looks fine to you until the plumb line comes in and then you see straight up and down. In a world of falsehood and deception... God speaks the truth, and so we bring our thoughts captive. We bring them into line. That may not be able to help you change anything, but it will make you profoundly content and confident that the God who can and will change everything is doing a fine job despite the confusion, despite the falsehoods. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about the God who is there. He didn't just use the term God, but this is the real God, the God who is there. He has spoken in the pages of Scripture. He has given us true words, reliable words, understandable words. Now, I mentioned twice that the disciples, they sometimes couldn't get what he was driving at when he began, but then he would explain it to them. And after the resurrection, He explained everything to them. And it became clear, and they wrote it down for us, so that we have the advantage of that clear and understandable Word. And it tells us, this real Word tells us, that there is such a thing as life, indeed. Abundant life. And it's to be found in the Lord Jesus and in Him alone. That's the point. One door to the sheepfold, in and out through Jesus, to find pasture, to have eternal life. One way, no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so we access eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a stumbling block to the natural person. The person who is inclined to believe any lie, but what they sure know is not true, is the truth. Again, it would be laughable if it wasn't so eternally tragic. But if the Spirit is working in your heart, you've heard the word of the Lord. You've identified it as the voice of your shepherd. You are His sheep and you come to Him and you go in and out. And you find life for your soul. 
You know, for those of us who have spent a lot of time in the church and listened to lots of sermons, um, we can come to take this way too much for granted. It's like taking a relationship for granted and then suddenly it's gone. After I left seminary, one of my friends from seminary was, uh, was a young guy, just like me, you know, early 20s, mid-20s. Uh, and he lived at the seminary. I don't remember why. But he went out one morning to play basketball, and he had a stroke or a heart attack, and he died. And afterward, his wife was grieving as much over the fact that she hadn't cherished the relationship And that day, of course, she thought he was coming right back again. We hear these promises of God over and over and over again, and for too many of it's like, yeah, well, that's all true, and it's no big deal to me. But to think that we have eternal life, and that that life is fed by union and communion with Christ, and it comes through Him speaking to us, in the Word, and us speaking to Him in prayer. So why should prayer and reading of the Bible, and I'll throw in coming to listen to sermons, such a teeny tiny part of our lives. We're on social media hours a day. We can't miss a news broadcast. But we also can't bring ourselves to spend a little time listening to the voice of the shepherd. We really ought to repent of that. We ought to admit that for the sin of lovelessness and unbelief that it represents. And then access that word. God forbid that we won't miss our Bibles until they're confiscated and we don't have them available anymore. You say, oh, it never happened. Talk to the Chinese Christians, the Soviet Christians, the African Christians. Oh, just one passage, please. From the Bible, can I can I get it? No, not available. We've got them. So, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Both make the point, no one comes to God but by me. The other ways are excluded. But, the good news is that if you come through Christ, and if, I mean, I recognize most of you, even with your masks on, you've professed to believe these things. But if there's doubt hiding in anyone's heart this morning, or if you really have to say, no, my, you know, my way of life is not to take the Bible seriously. I mean, I come and listen to sermons and I can talk the talk, but when it comes right down to it, I'd rather do it my way than God's way. Then today's an offer again. You can come through this door. You can come by this way if you will commit yourself, believe, and hear, follow the word, the voice of the shepherd. Lord, we thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you for the promise of your word. And we ask for grace, Lord God. I mean, we've read the verses, no one can come to you unless the Father who sent you draw him. And so we know that 
that has to happen first, but it's going to register in our consciences by our coming and hearing and following and believing. And so grant us that grace. And may we cherish much more than we have even in the past. Even the most faithful of us, O Lord, could be more faithful, more devoted to hearing the voice of the shepherd and in hearing him and following him to have life and to have it abundantly. Grant it, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.